0: Let's bow our heads for a prayer, and we'll begin. Our Father in heaven, I ask as we talk about a holy topic that you would give us supernatural understanding. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The handout that you have, I think you have it now, and if you don't, you don't have it, do you? I can just see it's not in your laps. So near the back, sitting on, on chairs somewhere, should be some. There was a lady here that was doing Yeah, here they are. All right. Could I have a... Thank you, gentlemen. You could just pass out a bunch of those. So the handout that you're going to have soon is called Ellen White on Ellen White. There has been a lot that's been done in the last couple of decades to make light of compilations. As if it was never God's will that there be compilations. You ought to know that what you have in your hands is a compilation of Ellen White's writings made by Ellen White. And the topic of it is the nature and the influence of the testimonies. So I'm just going to teach you a few things biblically. In fact, a lot a number of things biblically, and then we're going to look at some of these. And I'm going to teach you some history about eighteen eighty eight. Let's start with a story. Once upon a time in a land that was right here, um, it, there was a meeting of Seventh-day Adventist administrators, the general conference of eighteen eighty eight, met in October of that year. When the people arrived at the meeting. When the delegates were there, the general conference president was missing. So some of us know, what was his name? That was George Butler. George Butler was homesick. Many of the delegates that came to that meeting came with a different view of inspiration than they had ever had previous in their life. What had happened... Ellen White had been in California. And in California, she was there with her son, Willie. She was there with these two young ministers, Jones and Wagner. And Jones and Wagner had begun teaching about the law in Galatians. Not like that was the only thing they were teaching. Not even like it was the focal point of their teaching. Not like it was their their favorite thing to talk about. Only it was like this, that if they talked about ten things, and this was one of them, this was the one that agitated people. Do you follow what I'm just saying? And because it agitated people, it's the one that got the most attention. What I just said is a very practical lesson, if you think it through. That there might be something to say for not talking about the thing that's going to agitate people, for fear it will become the main thing, when you didn't want it to be the... Main thing. Then something happened. A man in California observed what was going on that Ellen White was on friendly relations with Jones and Wagner. He observed that Jones and Wagner were charismatic, that they could carry audiences with them. And he observed that Ellen White was soft spoken and old. And when he thought things through, what happens when you have charismatic, driven young men communicating with an easygoing, soft-spirited old lady? Can you picture what's going to happen? Aren't they going to take her with them? And so he wrote letters to several people in Battle Creek, indicating... He was indicating in those letters... That Ellen White was being influenced by these men and that everyone should be on guard when they heard her because what she would teach would likely be a combination of her own ideas and ideas that came from these gentlemen. This anonymous letter from California. Ellen White didn't know about it and God had not shown her about this letter. But Butler was taken by it. Ellen White writes about her experience in Minneapolis that she had never been treated so rudely in her life. That people that came, that she had been friends with for years, came and they gave her a cold shoulder. I'll tell you one of the experiences that happened there. There was a man by the name of Lewis Conradi. He had been working in Europe for several years up to that point. Had started our work in He started our official work in Germany, though it had been started by another gentleman years before, unofficially. While he was working in Europe, he became very perplexed by some of our doctrines, namely the sanctuary, the idea that Jesus went into the most holy place in 1844, it didn't seem to him to be biblically true. Then there was the issue of the testimonies. It didn't seem to him that that they could be harmonized well with Scripture. And when he left Europe to come to the General Conference in 1888, he had the idea that there he would meet with faithful men who understood answers to his perplexities, that he would receive comfort and encouragement. He was looking forward to that. And when he arrived here in Minneapolis, what he found instead was that the people he looked up to had the same perplexities that he had about the testimonies. That is, people like Uriah Smith, like George Butler, who wasn't here, but like several others, Amanda and I'm thinking. Men he had really looked up to were speaking about inspired and uninspired testimonies. Let me just take you away from that for a minute and go to a Bible verse. Turn up in your Bibles to Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're looking at verse 12. It says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they, what does it say? The prophets which were before you. Wouldn't it be interesting for you to read the verse before this and know how prophets were persecuted? Let's look at verse 11. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you, what does it say? falsely for my sake. When I discovered this passage, it was settled with me that the way Satan persecutes prophets, maybe sometimes he has them cut in half, maybe sometimes he has them burned, maybe sometimes he finds a way to kill them, but if you're talking about the generic, normal way he persecutes prophets, it's by telling lies about their life. Isn't it clear biblically that that's what it says here? Wouldn't it be a a natural conclusion from this verse that if Ellen White had been a true prophet, that you would have to put a wall between you and the rumor mill if you were going to know exactly what she really did teach and what she really did do? Because what would be Satan's generic, normal way to persecute her? to speak all manner of evils against her falsely. And if you have an interest in history, you know that a lie in 1890 by 1920 can be a well-confirmed fact. And by 1940, it can be highly documented. And let me explain what I mean by that. That you can find people who wrote about it from the 1890s who were deluded by the original lie and people who learned it from them, who said they heard it from reliable people, who got it from its source, so that by the time you come to our day, you can have very well-documented lies. Turn from your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and we're looking at verse 3. For what if some did not believe, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Not at all. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings. The first principle that you've seen here in that verse, how many men be liars? Why would you want to let all men be liars in the verse? It's so God could be true. Men are such that you might have to conclude that the whole bunch of them are dishonest. If you're going to know that God teaches the truth, look at the next verse. But if our unrighteousness command the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That question. In other words, if when I sin, this makes God look better... Then, what does that mean? Is God unrighteous, which takes vengeance? I speak like a man. Not at all. For then, how shall God judge the world? The logic of these verses, which is almost a distraction, but we're getting to our point. The logic is that when I do wrong, if God already knew that I was going to do it, if he said that I was going to do it, then how can he condemn me if he knows that I'm stuck? Verse 6, and not rather as we be, what is the next word? Slanderously reported and as some, what's the next phrase? As some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. If I understand this verse correctly, there were people who heard Paul speak. And they said that Paul said that the more we sin, the more God's grace helps us. When they said it, there were others who had heard Paul speak. And what did those others do? They affirmed that they had heard the same thing themselves. Can you see enough in this verse to see that a a slanderous report could be confirmed by eyewitnesses? Does it begin to show you how unreliable the the sayings of men can be? Especially if the standard way of persecuting prophets is to speak all manner of evil against them falsely and then compound that with the fact that eyewitnesses might confirm the lies. What you have is history becomes a very dangerous way to evaluate prophets. Aren't you glad there's a better way? to compare what they've written to the Word of God? Can you see it's the only reliable way? Because anything else makes you susceptible to the manipulations of slanderous reports. The fact of the matter was in 1888 that Ellen White had never read an article by Jones or Wagner on the law in Galatians. She had purposefully tried not to fill her mind with it because she did not want to be influenced by them. And all she had said about it up to that point was that it it wasn't a good idea to bring our controversy over it before the public. So she had told Wagner and Jones not to publish on it. Butler had been happy about that and he had published on it. Then she had told Butler that he should have known better than to publish on it when she had told them not to. So now they would have to be allowed to for fairness sake. All of which is off my topic because we're talking about the testimonies. Turn with me in your handout. You have it there, the front page. The first paragraph. As the end draws near and the work of giving the last warning to the world extends, it becomes more important for those who accept present truth to have a clear understanding of the nature and influence of the testimonies, which God in his providence has linked with the work of the third angel's message from its very rise. If you don't have the handouts, there's more of them up here. David, would you put that box in the back? It's very embarrassing to walk to the front to grab something. So... What we just read is that in the time of verse history that we're in, we have to have, we need to have a better understanding of how this works. Let me just tell you why in the context of 1888. What is faith? Faith is living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Bible says in Habakkuk 4, the just shall live by faith. It says in Romans 1, the just shall live by faith. It says in Hebrews 10, the just shall live by faith. It says in Luke 4 that man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It says in Matthew 4 that man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This idea is all through Scripture. Either there are two ways to live or these six passages are synonymous. That is, living by faith is living by every word that proceeds from the Mouth of God. That is what faith is. If faith is living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, all Satan has to do to create unbelief is to create unbelief in some portion of what God has said. His technique for doing this is simple. If he can create doubt in the testimonies, he can use that to wiggle one of two directions. Either if the testimonies are false, then the test that we apply to them, we eventually find that the Bible fails under the same test, and we become infidels. I had a letter just a few weeks ago from a man who has given up his confidence in Scripture and in the Adventist faith. This was the track that he went. But there's another track, and it's the one that Uriah Smith went on that almost cost him his life. Maybe at some point you'd want to listen to a sermon or audio verse called uh, Uriah and the Precipice. It's a sermon about his experience with this idea. Uriah concluded "The inspiration works like this. God gives the prophet some ideas. The prophet writes down his or her ideas... But the prophet may also mix with them some of his or her own ideas so that the testimony becomes a mixture of the human and the divine. Ellen White described that view of inspiration as Uriah walking in the dark, not knowing where he was going, and she called that letter to him a warning not to take a single step further that he was in danger of going too far. You know, I expect to see Uriah in heaven. He stopped at the precipice, but it was too late to stop him from doing a great deal of damage. Uriah had written letters to D.M. Canwright expressing his doubts in the testimonies. And D.M. Canwright published those letters in his book, Adventism Renounced. So that when an Adventist gets a hold of Adventism Renounced, he knows he's reading about an apostate, but many times he's surprised and disappointed to find in the middle of the book two significant letters from Uriah Smith. What was Uriah Smith's view? It was that inspiration is a combination of human ideas and inspired ideas. And the problem with this, besides the fact that it just isn't so, is that you will never risk your life on an idea that you're not sure is from God. If inspiration is a mixture of ideas, then the very point that you're put under pressure over You won't be able to put all your weight on it because you're just not sure that it is the part that's from God. I want to take you to a Bible study, but I'm not confident I can find the passages I'm thinking of. So I'm going to tell you about them while I'm looking for them. There are three kings in a row... That all start out good. And they all end up bad. The last of them is Isaiah. And they all have the same experience. Their experience is that at some point in their good reign, they make a mistake. You know, God never faults us. I mean, let me say it right. God never condemns us for making mistakes. But He sends us correction. And with one of these, his mistake, well, with Isaiah? what was his mistake? It was that he tried to take part in the priesthood. He got so excited in his zeal for being a spiritual man that he wanted to offer sacrifice. And the priest told him not to do it. But he said, how can you say that? I'm the king. And then he received leprosy in his forehead. All which thing was a symbol of the mark of the beast the mark that comes when a man with civil power tries to use it also to take the priestly role and to uh, that was what he did at that point he became an enemy of god the two before him had the same experience they were doing right one of them ended up being rebuked you know one of them ended up killing the young man he grew up with he killed zachariah He was raised by Zechariah's father, Jehoiada. And as long as Jehoiada was with him, he did the right thing. But then he made a mistake and Zechariah rebuked him. What did he do when he was rebuked? He had Zechariah put to death. The summary of what I'm saying is that at least for these three kings in a row, the trial or the question of their life Came over the issue of receiving correction from a prophet. And in every case, they concluded that the prophet was not reliable. That's what Satan is aiming for, for us. He's aiming to bring us to a test where we'll conclude, okay, I've said the same thing 30 times, haven't I? And I ought to go on. Look at the second paragraph. It was not long after the passing of the time in 1844 that my first vision was given me. I was visiting a dear sister in Christ whose heart was knit with mine. Five of us, all women, were kneeling quietly at the family altar. While we were praying, the power of God came upon me as I had never felt it before. I seemed to be surrounded with light and to be rising higher and higher from the earth. At this time I had a view of the experience of the Advent believers the coming of Christ, and the reward to be given to the faithful. It's interesting to me to read that. If you would go to Wikipedia and look up references to Desmond Ford. Yeah, did you know Wikipedia talks about Desmond Ford? I don't know if you knew that. You'll find there, among the things that he disagrees with the Adventist church on, quite a number... But near the bottom, they'll say that he still has confidence in the inspiration of Ellen White. I'll tell you about how much to think about that. In the morning, when I had my devotions, I prayed that God would teach me. I believe his promise that he will teach me and that his spirit guides me. You could say, in a certain sense, that I was inspired this morning. But you know, you had better not depend on that inspiration. Because I, as a man, am teaching things as fast as I learned them. And what I teach is a mixture of things that God has taught me and things that I've misunderstood. It is a thoroughgoing mixture. And if you just take what I say at face value... You will be deluded in the same way that I am. In fact, maybe God will show me I was wrong tomorrow, but he won't show you that I was wrong. That's not how he works with prophets. Can you tell from the second paragraph that the experience she had is not the one you had in your devotions? That the thing that God does with prophets is a different type of experience? That he raises them and then... What do what you remember about prophets? Here is the wicked man Balaam does he want to say the wrong thing? You know he wants to say the wrong thing. And he is incapable of saying the wrong thing. Because men are looking at him as a prophet of God. People come to Nathan because Nathan, didn't he say the wrong thing to David? But I'll tell you what I noticed about Nathan is that God never let him write the wrong thing, as if it was the right thing. And how long did Nathan get away with saying the wrong thing? Looks like about eight hours. That is that God so superintended the prophetic work of Nathan that when he did say something that wasn't accurate, God took charge of making sure that it was corrected in living time. Do you know with Ellen White that when she gave her first testimonies, I believe there's a reference to it in here, that she didn't give them quite right? That if God would give a testimony, say, for you, that would say that you have hardened your heart, that you are proud and arrogant, that she might say it kind of like this, that it seems that you might have an issue with thinking more about yourself than you probably ought to, that there might be a danger of being hardened. What did I do to the two ideas? Didn't I soften it down some? But you know, God knows what he wants to say and just how he wants to say it. And when she did soften down the testimonies, she had a very scary experience. She saw the frown of Jesus. She was told that if she did not deliver faithfully the testimonies given, that this would be her experience. Did you know it wasn't until after she had this experience that God commissioned her to write her testimonies? I learn from the life of Ellen White something about my Holy Bible. That even prophets may go through a training experience but that they are not commissioned to write something that I need to depend on until they have gotten through this point of knowing not to mix what God says with what they think. Look at paragraph, I guess it's paragraph 6. Do you see, I now entreated... I now entreated that if I must go and relate what the Lord had shown me, I should be preserved from undue exaltation. Said the angel, Your prayers are heard and shall be answered. If this evil that you you dread threatens you, the hand of God will be stretched out to save you. By affliction he will draw you to himself and preserve your humility. Deliver the message faithfully, endure unto the end, and you shall eat the fruit of the tree of life and drink of the water of life. Do you see any wisdom in God's choice of someone as a messenger? What was she afraid of? Becoming proud. Being self-dependent. Look at the second to the last paragraph, I did not realize... This is where we're talking about the softening up of those testimonies. I did not realize the danger and sin of such a course until in vision I was taken into the presence of Jesus. He looked upon me with a frown and turned his face from me. It is not possible to describe the terror and agony I then felt. I fell upon my face before him, but had no power to utter a word Oh, how I longed to be covered and hid from that dreadful frown. Then could I realize in some degree what the feelings of the lost will be when they cry, mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us. Next paragraph. Presently an angel bade me rise, and the sight that met me, that met my eyes can hardly be described. Before me was a company of whose hair and garments were torn, whose countenances were the very picture of despair and horror, They came close to me and rubbed their garments upon me. As I looked at my garments, I saw that they were stained with blood. Again, I fell like one dead at the feet of of my accompanying angel. I could not plead one excuse and longed to be away from that holy place. The angel raised me to my feet and said, This is not your case now. But this scene has passed before you to let you know what your situation must be if you neglect to declare to others what the Lord has revealed to you. We're talking about 1888 in this series. And my first point here this morning was that 1888 was a disaster because of the way men related to the testimonies of God's Spirit. Because they came leavened with this false idea about inspiration, when God recommended to them the teachings of Jones and Wagner through Ellen White, they did not credit the recommendation. When, when Ellen White brought before them the scenes of the judgment and the scenes of Christ's sacrifice, it barely made an impression on them. They were not treating her testimony as the word of God, but as it was not the word of man. Because of the relation to what God was teaching, they were unable to receive the latter rain. Turn with me in your Bibles to Joel. The book of Joel, and we're looking at chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. We're looking at verse 23. I'm using one of those world small Bibles, so it has no marginal references, marginal readings I mean, but I think some of you have marginal readings, you can confirm what I'm going to tell you. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. Does your marginal reading say a teacher of righteousness in righteousness? I see at least one nod, two, three nods. The idea of the word play in Joel 2 is that Jesus was going to come to his people as a teacher of righteousness. He was going to fill them with his spirit by means of filling them with the truths of the word of God. How can I say this thought in another way? The latter rain came its first phase was a message. A message that when received would change the experience of the people. But when the first phase was rejected, there are such lessons from the experience of 1888. There is an idea that has been promoted that Jones and Wagner were rejected because of their personality problems, because Jones was a caustic individual. I hope you can hear something dangerous in that idea. Who chooses the workers that are chosen to do God's work? Doesn't God choose whom he will? Do we want to say that the message failed because God chose the wrong men? I'm not saying that Jones is faultless, but that God chose him on purpose. And that though Elmite rebuked him for some of the things he said and the way he said them, that God showed her what was really going on. That back in the rooms that night after the message, Men begin to talk about their, the meeting. It would be as if when you left here that you, with your friends, began to talk about this meeting. And if you began to talk not about the truths or the errors that are presented here, but making light of me or my personality or the way that I speak, if God had chosen me to be a messenger, You would not realize what you were doing, but you would be making light of God's ability to choose his messengers. I'm telling you what the testimony said about 1888. God, the spirit of God, was grieved by the way the men related, making fun of these men. You know, in my, I I think it is the fifth of the series of six lectures... I'm going to be talking about Wheeland in short. I talked to Robert Wheeland on the phone last week. I guess a week and a half ago. He called me. That was quite an honor. I'll tell you right now, I think that that brother teaches some things that aren't so. But I love the powerful truths that he has taught and believe that he has done a tremendous thing to help the Adventist Church. I'm using him as an illustration of this point that God chooses the people he wants to to do the work that he wants to do. And it is so dangerous a trick of the devil to get us to evaluate the speaker that God chooses on the basis of anything other than how what he says squares with the word of God. It's the only safety we have in evaluating anything he has to say. Do you know what Ellen White had to say about Wagner in 1888? She said that she did not agree with everything the man presented. And then she said that that was perfectly fine because he was presenting the matchless charms of Jesus and that anyone who would exalt Jesus in the way that he did, and if he says a hundred things about Jesus that are beautiful and one or two of them is not quite right, yet that contrasts sharply with Someone else who presents nothing at all about Jesus, but everything he says is right. So that Ellen White, her, mess, her heart thrilled through and through with this message. Let me come back to my theme. The last deception in the Adventist church will be to make of none effect the testimonies of the Spirit. At Audioverse, there's a new sermon there by Dave Fiedler called Making of None Effect. I recommend you listen to it. I guess it's more like a history lecture. I have one there also on the same topic from some time long ago, but it's different material. How is it that men make of none effect the testimonies of the Spirit? Turn me your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. We are looking at verse 6. Matthew 15 verse 6. Speaking about the Pharisees. You honor not, or he honors not his father nor his mother. He will be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. It's such an interesting verse, this and the verses before it. Because if you were to ask these Pharisees if they believe in keeping the law of God, what would they say to you? They'd say yes. And would they be sincere? They would be sincere. And yet, the way they were living their life showed or it undermined the impact of the Ten Commandments. Their teachings in their life undermined the impact of the very law they claimed to obey. And what were they doing according to the passage? Weren't they making the Ten Commandments of none effect? I can believe that if Desmond Ford was here and I asked him, are you sincere in believing Elmite's writings? That maybe sincerely he could tell me yes. But you know his doctrines that he teaches and that he has taught undermine what she teaches and make those very testimonies of none effect. The danger in our day is that there are a great number of people that do this, and it comes about two different ways. I've been trying to fight one of them. The one I've been trying to fight in this lecture is the way where you come to believe that some things are inspired and some things aren't. And in that case, the things that you agree with, you think are, and the things that you don't, you think aren't. Suddenly, the testimonies have become incapable of teaching you Because where they agree with you, you amen. And where they don't agree with you, you excuse yourself. There's another method of people making none effect. It's maybe more prevalent. It's just not reading enough to know what they say. So that how did they make the commandments of none effect in Matthew fifteen? It was by their tradition. At Washtenaw Hills College, I teach a number of classes where the textbook is one of Ellen White's books. There's a book, for example, called Publishing Ministry. It has so much information. I know brethren in the publishing ministry that have violated counsel after counsel after counsel that is in that book. And I don't think they did it a single time with any idea that they were violating anything God had ever said. They just haven't read it. Turn with me to the very last page. It says chapter 82. Excuse me, that's not the last page. It's... The, last, the inside of the last page, versus chapter 83. You see unfounded reports. Several times during the past winter. Listen, this was the winter that she spent a part of it here in Minneapolis. Several times during the past winter, I have met the report that during the conference at Minneapolis, Sister White was shown that the judgment which since 1844 had been passing upon the righteous dead, had now begun upon the living. This report is not true. Can you see enough in that sentence to realize that the people were sincere in making the report? They had been sincere enough to bring it to Ellen White's attention? You know, you wouldn't do that if it was a lie, would you? A similar rumor, which has been afloat for about two years, originated in this wise. In a letter written from Basel, Switzerland, to a minister in California, I made a remark substantially as follows. The judgment has been over 40 years in progress in the cases of the dead, and we know not how soon it will pass to the cases of the living. The letter was read to different persons, and careless hearers reported what they thought they heard. Thus the matter started. The report from Minneapolis arose from someone's misunderstanding of a statement to the same effect as the one quoted from the letter. There is no other foundation for either report than this. Let me just stop here for a moment. Do you realize that Ellen White is dead? If a report got going like this today, you know, there wouldn't be anyone to stop it. Secondly, report has it that a minister now living has been seen by me in vision as saved in the kingdom of God, thus representing that his final salvation is assured. There is no truth whatever in this statement. The word of God lays down the conditions of our salvation and it rests wholly with ourselves whether or not we will comply with them. Look down to the third of the last paragraph on the page. You see the third report? The third report states that, in the conference at Minneapolis, Sister White confessed that in some of her remarks at that meeting, she had been in error and had manifested a wrong spirit. This report also is wholly without foundation. I could not forbear giving to the conference the light that God had given me. This I presented both in messages of warning and reproof and in words of hope and faith. But nothing spoken by me at that meeting has been taken back or confessed to be wrong. I still view matters from the same standpoint and am of the same mind as when at Minneapolis. All the dangers which I then saw and which brought such a burden upon me have been more clearly developed since that meeting. As I became more fully acquainted with the condition of our churches, I see that every warning given at Minneapolis was needed." So when Ellen White would no longer soften the things she had to say, rumor began to soften them. To indicate that she had apologized for how plain she had been. How much time is left in this period? Fifteen? The influence of this report from Minneapolis tended to destroy confidence in all reproofs and warnings given by me to the people. One example of this I will here relate. A sister connected with one of our missions had been reproved for her wrong influence over the young people with whom she was associated. She had encouraged a spirit of lightness, trifling, and frivolity. Does that sound normal for people over the youth? And what had Ellen White done in her case? Reproved her. Which That spirit grieved away the spirit of God, which was demoralizing to the workers when the report came by letter from Minneapolis concerning sister white's wrong course, which called for a confession there, the relatives of Sister T at once remarked, "Well, if Sister White was wrong in regard to matters in the conference at Minneapolis and had to confess this, she may have made a mistake also at the- Excuse me, as to the message she gave my sister, and may have to confess that also. And they justified the wrongdoer in her course. Look at the very last paragraph in the handout. And now to all who have a desire for truth, I would say do not give credence to unauthenticated reports as to what Sister White has done or said or written. If you desire to know what the Lord has revealed through her, what does it say? Read her published works. Are there any points of interest concerning which she has not written? Do not eagerly catch up and report rumors as to what she has said. Isn't it such a simple thing? We begin in this meeting with Matthew 5. Well, with a story, and then Matthew 5. How does Satan persecute prophets? It's by speaking all manner of evil against them falsely. Slanderous reports may be affirmed by eyewitnesses. And what is the danger? That when a reproof comes to me, when I ought to humble my heart, and to put away the sin, that rather I will figure that Ellen White could not have meant quite what she said. This has happened a lot in The Most Practical Things. In Great Controversy, page 43, Ellen White indicates that there have always been two classes in the church. There have been the class that shunned the plain practical doctrines that revealed their errors. She describes them earlier in that same page. They like doctrinal ideas. If you'll tell them what was true, they'll accept this. But it's the doctrines about how to live the life, these they don't want to credit because they would have to make a change. Then she says in the bottom of page 43, the other class are those That compare themselves to the life of Jesus in order to conform to the pattern. There was a man, Brother Aldridge, that lived in the 1860s at Battle Creek. He was in charge also, or had a large influence with young people in Battle Creek. And this is about the way he was thinking. The gospel is important. The cross is important. Faith is important. The way that we eat or drink or dress, it might be true, but it's not important. I'm summarizing for you the position of Brother Aldridge. Ellen White wrote him a letter. You can find this in the Ellen White CD-ROM or the website BibleDoc.org a letter to Brother Aldridge. Something to this effect, she wrote him. This is a major paraphrase. If God says something, it is important. God does not trifle. That if you do not see that it is important, the very least that a mortal could do would be to keep respectful silence. You know I can understand that logic. It makes sense to me that I serve a God who doesn't say anything that's not important. Then she said to Brother Aldridge that the young people take shelter underneath you. That if you say it's not, if you treat it as if it's not important, they conclude it can't be any relevance whatsoever. And so for them the matter is settled. It was just that kind of influence that came into 1888. Here in Minneapolis, people rejected the testimonies, not concluding that Ellen White was a false prophet, but that she was an unreliable true prophet. And by the position that she was an unreliable true prophet, they had no idea the train of events they set in order. I'll tell you just one of them, and it will be all that we can go through for today. I mentioned to you Louis Canradi. He came here for encouragement, but what did he find? Just more of what he already had. So he picked up what he found here. He went back to Europe. And for the next 30 years of his ministry for the Adventist church, he taught an Adventism devoid of the sanctuary and devoid of the testimonies. The type he taught was the type that the people converted by him received. And as soon as retirement plans were established by the general conference, he retired, resigned, well, retired instead of resigned, he retired and then removed his membership from the Seventh-day Adventist Church and joined the Seventh-day Baptist. But prior to that in World War I, Many young men in Germany were drafted into the German military. You know, many of those young men refused to bear arms and refused to take orders on Sabbath. Louis Conradi was apprehended, or, that's the wrong word. Anyway, he was caught by the German military. They told him that they were going to dissolve his organization because of the unfaithfulness of his members. It looked like they were sympathizing with the enemy. Conradi guaranteed the military, the government, that his church would support the government. And he had the membership sign a document that they would. Going to school on Sabbath, bearing arms, taking orders on Sabbath, those who would not sign were disfellowshipped. Do you know 200 Adventist Gen men were executed by the German military for refusing to submit? There was no comfort to it. The military would not listen to the men say that it was their church's teaching because they had it in writing that the church wasn't teaching that. I am glad the men stood for what was right. But Conradi through his influence, set up a chain of events that has led to Europe even today being weak in its relation to the testimonies of God's Spirit. Where did that come from? You can trace it to the influence of a letter from California spreading a rumor about the reliability of Ellen White influencing a group of men who should not have been influenced in such a way. In fact, Ellen White spoke to them. And there's a plain testimony to this effect. It's that you've known me and my work and the character of my work for decades. You've tested it all this time. And how could you, on the basis of a rumor, in contrast with the great volume of evidence, how could you? It was later, after Jill and Wagner were involved, that men said that it was Willie White that influenced his mother. If you'd like to read a great document on that, there's a uh, dissertation published by Andrews University Press called Ellen White and Willie White. In fact, I think the writer, Jerry Moon, might be here somewhere. I'm not certain about that. It just demonstrates the fallacy, but it's been taught all over. Okay, i am done my last four minutes. It's time for me to summarize. I've only said one thing the whole time. The one thing I've said is that we have been deluded by lies about Ellen White. We've heard lies about the things that she ate, lies about the things that she wore, lies about the things that she said, lies about the way that she wrote, lies about the author of her materials, Lies about her plagiarism. Can I comment on that for 40 seconds? In the last two years, Walter Ray has resurfaced. Maybe it was four years ago. Time goes real fast. You know, he wrote the book, The White Lie. And our church responded with a book called The White Truth. But in The White Lie, he suggested that Ellen White was a plagiarist. And now in the last decades, he kept hearing things like, well, the testimonies aren't plagiarized, the testimonies aren't plagiarized, the testimonies aren't plagiarized. And so what he published recently was a document showing how the testimonies themselves, volumes one through nine, he goes section by section and shows how each section is plagiarized and shows the source document Elmite copied from its author and the book and the page numbers. I happened to have some of those books. I'd already had experience with knowing that Walter Ray wasn't an honest man. But I went ahead and took the one that I had most access to and compared the two sections where he said that Ellen White was copying. You know, I found a correlation. They were both about the Sabbath. That was the end of it. There was no similarity of thought no similarity of order of ideas. They weren't even making the same points. They did not use the same verses. That there was no correlation except for that they were both on the Sabbath. Walter Ray is a liar. We have heard lies about Ellen White and we should not have been taken by them because we had been warned that this is the normal way of persecuting prophets. We should have been warned just thinking about the Bible, that God protects inspired writings from being a mixture of truth and error. Otherwise, we could never have faith in every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That that idea should have been with us, just thinking it through. But we have plenty of evidence in Ellen White's life that that's how it worked. And the evidence we have in our head to the contrary, a good chunk of it is lies and the rest can be explained. Feel free to email me if you have questions about specific things you've heard. I'd be happy to get into specifics. My email address is memorable. It's canvassing at canvassing.org. Let's kneel for a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, I confess before all these that are here that you have given plenty of information to cause your work to be done. And I am sorry for those who have allowed Satan to confuse their minds as to the quality of Ellen White's inspiration. And I'm just as sorry for the so many more who have become confused by simply neglecting to read that beautiful quality of inspiration. I ask that you would save us from making our testimonies of none effect, that the next time or this time when you present your righteousness in such a way as to bring about the latter rain, we might receive it with due respect and reverence. And I ask for these gifts in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.